Um, well, thank you, Eric. With an introduction like that, I was tempted just to sit and let you continue to explain uh, my ministry and my personality. Thank you. Um, so, uh, it is a great joy to be with you all. And as Eric said, I uh, represent sort of a interesting tribe, as it were, of um, Anglican uh, Reformation um, Episcopalian scholars, practitioners who have um, appropriated uh, Luther and the doctrine of justification of my faith as our central concern. Um, and so that is what I represent here today. And uh, Eric mentioned some of the brief outline of my uh, life and ministry, but I um, and I don't want to repeat all of it, but um, I do want to begin with a prayer, which I think will situate us, um, written by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer and published in the very first English prayer books. So the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, I wanted to begin with that prayer because it sort of represents the mature theology of the soon-to-be-martyred Archbishop Thomas Cranmer after his 30-year wrestling with his introduction to what he would have called the Evangelical Movement in 1532 in Nuremberg. And in it, you see this profound and persistent and unwavering diagnosis of the human condition that he immortalized. There's a wonderful book called The Immortal Bequest of Thomas Cranmer. It talks about the, the uh, prayer book. But he immortalized in and through his prayer book and through the liturgy so much so that when you are given eyes to see through the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, um, that we have are desperately sick and in incalculable need well, then it begins to speak in a profound and altogether sweeter way than it ever otherwise could. And that's our conviction, is that when we had been given through the ministry of this man via the English Reformation, a diagnosis of both our human condition and ultimately the salvation found solely through Christ alone, well, then we had something to talk about. And that's what we have been talking about now for uh, me personally for, uh, I guess, almost 17 years now. But um, Mockingbird in particular has just had its 10-year anniversary. And I was overjoyed to see um, Dr. Mattis here yesterday. He was in our inaugural conference 10 years ago in Manhattan. There were about 40 of us, and we didn't really know what we were doing, and we didn't really know what we were talking about, and Mark didn't really know what he was getting into, and um, well, here we are. So there we go. But I wanted to also um, just reference uh, briefly uh, my, I guess you're my stepbrother, uh, Jacob Korzine, and I both have a shared a, uh, share a doctor father uh, in Berlin, Notger Schlinska, but he um, wrote this in the foreword to the necessary distinction, which I commend to you. 
And he wrote this, the necessary distinction has relevance not only for such American Lutherans as are broadly represented among its authors, but also ecumenical relevance, as non-Lutherans today increasingly become aware of the value of law gospel distinction, it is incumbent upon those who are raised on it to speak out, and they do so here. Well, I think I, timely, I represent these non-Lutherans, although I think um, with the spirit of Luther, given the sense that the idea of the church was simply a preaching movement of evangelical reform, I would claim to be a Lutheran in that respect, uh, along with all others who um, would, would uh, say similarly. So that's where we are. In um, uh, I don't want to to um, to repeat exactly what Eric said, but we did meet last year, and the circumstances surrounding our introduction are a little bit instructive because it wasn't just to watch. What had happened down in Birmingham is a man who um, had gone to Germany to do his PhD had uh, come back and began to preach the uh, distinction between law and gospel and the emphasis on justification by faith alone as understood rightly through the English prayer book and in particular the liturgy of the Anglican Church. And so an entire generation of ministers were influenced, myself included, by this. And he had been the rector of this church and had a profound ministry in Birmingham so much so that people were still confused, as they seem will be the case until the the Lord returns, about what the big deal was between Reformed and Lutherans concerning something called the third use of the law. And so um, we're not going to rehash that here, um, although I have thoughts. But, um, But someone actually gave money to bring in the best and brightest, which of course we have two of them here, Dr. Aaron and Dr. Herman, uh, to represent the Lutheran side and the Reform side and to, at the very least, move the dial or move the ball a little bit further down the field. And so I was invited to participate as sort of an ecumenical observer because I wasn't officially, confessionally, either or. and it was a great joy of mine. But that's where we are as um, uh, sort of the, the English Reformation, the Reformational Anglicans, whatever you want to call us, the people who care about the Reformation um, in my circle who are Anglicans are speaking uh, with great conviction, not simply about the doctrine of justification by faith and the distinction between law and gospel, but that it is in fact part and parcel of our tradition. Now, it's a slight one, to be sure. It's been muted um, by all sorts of things, but uh, we have it on good authority, and I'm going to speak about that briefly, um, that we are uh, standing in, at the very least, a, a, a stream within our church that we will uh, continue to uh, preach, and most importantly, continue to watch people, lost, hurting, broken, and otherwise um, despairing people, be brought to the saving knowledge of God and Christ through the preaching of uh, of the gospel. And so um, that's what I'm going to do right now. I'm going to give you a little bit of history. I'm watching the time, um, but as a preacher, you know, occupational hazard, I'm like, and so for point 53 of my um, 14 point lecture, I'm going to explain to you. Um, but I'm going to give you a little bit of history just in case. So you see, I'm sitting on good, uh, staying on good uh, stead here. And then I have a, three um, sort of theological convictions that I personally uh, 
um, think undergird the, the ministry of Mockingbird. I can't speak for David Zoll. He actually was supposed to be here with us today, but he had uh, some conflicts. But uh, I, I don't presume to speak for him, although we have been friends for many, many years, and I'm uh, very proud of what he is doing in and through that ministry. Um, and so uh, I sort of am a representative of it. But that's the hat tip to the Guns and Roses in the title, because... Um, if he were here, he would uh, he would have many more cultural references than I do. But I, we will hear from him, and in particular, the way that the gospel and the distinction between law and gospel has interacted with uh, none other than Axel Rose, uh, who some of you may be um, familiar with. So um, that's where we are. I have found myself. After six years in Europe and now five years in Louisville, three of which the rector, uh, this strange um, sort of chimera, this um, this uh, person who's in the Episcopal Church, uh, sort of has English Reformational leanings with a PhD in dogmatic systematic theology from from Berlin, with a, with a wonderful the book just rolls off your your lips. The um, the distinction between law and gospel is the basis and boundary of theological reflection. Like that's really that really just rolls off your uh, your. Uh, lips. It's, it's really easy to explain to people also that's um, just flying off the shelves. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, but, but that was a hat tip, I have to say. Some of you may be aware of this. Um, uh, one of the heroes in the book, in my, my, my life, is Dr. Oswald Bayer, a German Lutheran. And um, he has an article that was famous to me called Rechfertigung Grund und Grinse der Theologie, or justification as the ground and um, boundary, or as the basis and boundary of theology. And so when I did my work and my um, life apparently dedicated to this is to uh, continue to wrestle through the relationship between the distinction, proper distinction between law and gospel and its relationship to the doctrine of justification by faith, all geared towards ultimately the confidence the preacher would then have to stand up and preach. That's that's what we're doing. So more on that later, perhaps. But um, so that's where we are in terms of why and how I got here. I um, say a little bit, um, standing here today, it's funny, when we were in Berlin, we often uh, were sort of seen as oddities. My wife and I went over there when we were 29, and we were already married, and I was studying theology, but I also was an active pastor. And so all these things were sort of like individually not that big a deal, but together made us sort of quite odd. And we found ourselves at a number of different parties where essentially they were saying, these are the people we were telling you about. Um, and uh, go talk to them and find out what's wrong with them. And, um, and I was reminded, you know, like the 19th century when you'd go abroad and you'd bring back some oddities and you stick it in the middle of your room and have a cocktail party to show how uh, fancy you were, you know, and people would rotate around you. Well, this is, I have to feel much more comfortable than that, but I, um, I do realize that I'm in hallowed ground here and I speak, um, I have read and um, interacted with Concordia Press uh, for, for my entire adult life now. I've, I've written, many of the people that I've met even here today are just, were names that are now uh, faces and people that I know and I'm so thankful for your ministry here and I do appreciate um, that we are sort of um, uh, new to the scene. You know, we, we talk about things that are near and dear, the, the, your dogmatism 
politicians have fought and sweat over. Your, your uh, churches have split it in times over. And we play fast and loose a little bit with some of these things. And I'm, I'm trying not to, but I do just, I'm aware of that. And so I just want to thank you for the, the opportunity to be here and, um, and consider it a great joy. Um, so... When I was in the, um, growing up, when I was uh, beginning to be a theologian, I never thought that I would be in the uh, Episcopal Church, you know, the, the sort of American wing of, of Anglicanism. And I basically imbibed the uh, adage that Robin, the late, great Robin Williams, um, had of the Episcopal Church, which is it was Catholic light, um, all of the ritual and half the guilt, if you've ever heard him um, him say this. And uh, there's some truth in that, probably. Um, but I then was introduced to, as I said before, a man who was under the great conviction that Archbishop Cranmer had been gripped by the gospel and was then articulating it through not only his life and preaching, but most importantly, for posterity's sake, through the prayer book. And I was given to take a class. At the time, the words meant nothing to me in juxtaposition with each other on law and gospel. And in that class at a little Anglican seminary up outside of Pittsburgh, the bomb of the Reformation went off in my own life, um, and I've never been the same since. And many people in that class uh, have never been the same because all that was done was with on the, the foundation of Scripture, then we're through the lens in particular of Luther's commentary on Galatians, then superposed on that the liturgy uh, that Thomas Cranmer bequeathed to us, and all of a sudden we had this cocktail that has continued to be quite um, dynamic, has continued to, uh, to intrigue people firstly, and then um, more often than not really uh, uh, convert people. Not simply to the church, but to, um, to more importantly, to the, the, the gospel as understood as God's free grace for sinners, for his justification of the ungodly, for his mercies. And when people begin speaking like this, um, it is, uh, it's, it's the great joy and the great um, uh, the reason why we do this, really. And so the question for that, for me, was, is this, is this accurate? Can I actually be um, sort of an Anglo-Lutheran in any good, um, uh, uh, you know, intellectually so? Or do I need to join a different church body? You know, do I need to be more consistent with this? Well, thankfully, there is a world-famous uh, 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 church historian named Ashley Knoll, or at least Renown, who is an expert on Thomas Cramer, who is very sympathetic to uh, these, um, these uh, ideas, who happens to be situated in the University of Humboldt in Berlin to this, at this point. And so we went to study with him and say, hey, uh, tell me more about Cranmer. Well, he had been the, um, the research assistant for Dermot McCulloch in his magisterial biography on Cranmer, which I, uh, you should let someone else read that for you. Um, it's, um, it's really long. <laughs> I'm just sort of kidding, but you gotta really, you'll know more about Cranmer than, uh, than you know about your spouse uh, after that, um, <laughs> which, uh, <laughs> there you go. Um, so, um, but he writes this, which remains something very uh, important to me. He says, standing, this is about Cranmer, McCulloch writes this, standing as he did in the developing reform tradition of Europe in the 1550s, 
Cranmer's conception of a via media, of a middle way in religion, was quite different from that of later Anglicanism. (laughs) In the 19th century, when the word Anglicanism first came into common use, John Henry Newman said of the middle way, before his departure for the Church of Rome, that, quote, a number of distinct notions are included in the notion of Protestantism. And as to all these, our church has taken a via media between it and popery. Cranmer would have violently rejected such a notion. Now, that can't be overstated, actually, in my world, because the idea, just as an aside, that we are this via media between Protestants and the Roman Catholic Church, this is actually what most people believe, perhaps some of you. And in, in the, the case of the matter, the, the practice, um, you, you know, de, de, de facto, it actually is what mo- many people believe, but it is not historically what the case actually was, and certainly would not, for Cranmer, uh, would not have been um, his desire, uh, and had he lived longer, one hopes he would have helped clarify this. Cranmer would have violently rejected such a notion. The middle ground which he sought was the same as Bootser's, an agreement between Wittenberg and Zurich, which would provide a united vision of Christian doctrine against the counterfeit being refurbished at the Council of Trent. To define Cranmer as a Reformed Catholic is to define all the great continental reformers in the same way, for they too sought to build up the Catholic Church anew on the same foundation of the Bible, creeds, and of the great councils of the early church. Now, that I basically should get tattooed somewhere on my body um, because of it's, it's kind of a joke. I thought that was funny. Uh, There's nothing against tattoos, but why would you get something like that tattooed? <laughs> but I should hang it around my neck, right? Um, because it remains, um, uh, for my life's goal, is not out of antagonism towards any particular church, but out of a deep love for what we all share as, as children, as heirs of the Reformation, as this um, the, the rediscovery or the the re- re-articulation, however we want to say it, the, 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 the reason why we're here, that uh, was the reason why Cranmer gave his life and the reason why um, we perpetuate the teaching and preaching of the church so that, so that all may hear. And so Cranmer, that armed with that conviction, Ashley Knoll, who wrote a book uh, called Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance, Renewing the Power to Love, writes of his mature 1552 Book of Common Prayer liturgy thusly, quote, Cranmer intended his Eucharistic liturgy both to inspire loving repentance in the heart of the English and to make this new affection possible through word and sacrament properly presented. In the words of Dom Gregory Dix, Cranmer's 1552 Book of Common Prayer stands as, quote, the only effective attempt ever made to give liturgical expression to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, you may argue with that, of course, (laughs) but nevertheless, that is a powerful um, uh, statement and is by uh, no friend of the Reformation, this man, um, Dom Gregory Dix. Nevertheless, the conviction... Uh, that underlies our church's um, flagship and, and inaugural um, offering to the world, i.e. the prayer book, um, was decidedly reformational and shaped by uh, Cranmer and his interaction with, with Luther, or Luther's teaching at the very least. Um, and that is something that we are simply standing upon and continue to perpetuate uh, for 
for uh, wealth for the sake of the world, frankly. Um, and so that's where we are um, uh, stand. We, I realize now, as strange as it was to be there in Birmingham, that actually, historically speaking, I was right where I should be. We should be the Anglican Church, not the Via Media between a, a uh, papal disputation and some Protestants, but the Via Media insofar as it can exist with some sort of peace between Wittenberg and Zurich, or between the Reformed and the, the Lutherans. And so we have our 39 articles are insufficiently specific for both camps. <laughs> they say a little, um, but they are just good enough for us. And so you can sort of, you can, you can be, what I always describe it is we are, we are comfortable saying we have fewer things written in stone than other churches, but what we have written in stone, there's great overlap with all, with the great um, continental, or with the great Church of the Reformation. Um, and so, of course, on the sacraments, we would be uh, to Lutheran for some and to reform for others, for uh, understanding of the church, for the, all of the great ideas, we would almost be enough, <laughs> but just on either side, which puts us in an uncomfortable position, um, but allows me, for instance, to be on the, as it were, the Wittenberg edge of this pendulum, much to the chagrin of some of my friends who are much more on the Zurich or Geneva edge, but nevertheless, we can in our tradition, with great conviction and uh, um, consistency and integrity, affirm our 39 articles without having to um, cross our fingers, as it were. And so that's where uh, we are. I particularly, there was a... Um, uh, uh, a man who was dean of Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, named W.H. Griffith Thomas. He's a very reformed gentleman in the early 1900s. But I do share his conviction in this. I do not care much for mere party views, high, low, or broad. But I do care that a minister should be truly converted, truly spiritual, loving his Bible, and, a hearty, and hearty in his acceptance of Articles 6 and 20. Then he can call himself what he likes. Well, Article 6 simply says, uh, it's titled, Of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought necessary, to, or requisite, or necessary to salvation. That's Article 6. Article 20 says, On the authority of the church, the church hath, church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies, and the authority in controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written, neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the church be a witness and keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessary of salvation." These, from my way of thinking, remain the two pillars that upon which you can affirm without, ex without uh, equivocation, then call yourself what you want. <laughs> Anglo-Lutheran, Reformed Anglican, um, high church, low church, this doesn't really matter to, to us. Um, this is where 
uh, we stand, a church that's bound by the scriptures, committed to justification, and a liturgy that's grounded in the proclamation of the gospel um, is a very comfortable place for me as a, um, as a passionate defender of the doctrine of justification by faith and its necessary distinctions then between law and gospel can stand with great comfort. Um, Cranmer, in his liturgical formation, you know, we was borrowing from the, the Lutheran or, or the, the evangelical books that were going around um, during the time, uh, 1530s to the 1552 when he finally um, came up with this. And of the options that were given was a series of... of, uh, liturgical sentences that were said after the peace, I mean, after the absolution, before the peace, before communion. And Cranmer decided just to use all four of them uh, because he thought that it would just make sense to sort of pound in, you know, an uppercut, an uppercut, a jab, and then a haymaker um, on someone's heart. So the first, in, can you imagine, in English, the first liturgical form people would have heard uh, speaking would have included this litany. Hear the words, the comfortable words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that anyone who ever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Hear also what St. Paul says. If anyone said, uh, if, um, what does he say? Excuse me. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Hear also what St. John says. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. May the peace of the Lord be with you. That is the heart of of a man who knew the gospel, who had seen his depravity and had then given his life, unbeknownst to him at the time, and certainly devoted his life to enshrining and articulating a message that would not be dependent on the um, sort of wiles or the confusion of a preacher at times, but that would be immortalized and carried through. And that has actually persisted. Where you find sort of um, tender-hearted, sort of as as, um, Griffith Thomas would say, uh, ministers and and people in the church with a lively faith, they have come into contact in some way, shape, or form with this evangelical heart um, that Cranmer has. And so... There we go. I'm, it's it's ten thirty. I have ten to twelve minutes left. Is that okay? Um, um, good, because that's our that's my story. I've said that now in different languages, literally. Uh, di- I mean, in various ways uh, to different people. And you know, there you go. I mean, I, I um, uh, we have this band of uh, people that are loosely affiliated with Mockingbird, who by and large are connected in the Anglican Reformation tradition in some way, shape, or form, but not limited to that. We have a lot of um, Lutherans and the Presbyterians and Free Church. Um, not too many sort of free will Arminians working with us, uh, but that they get upset very quickly um, <laughs> against against their will. Who knew? Uh, but there you go. Uh, don't get so upset. Uh, so anyway, um, but um, we are uh, working through this. And one of the great uh, insights that we take from from y'all from from the the sort of Reformation tradition has to do with a quote that was used yesterday of, from about Kazamon, Kazamon saying that um, anthropology is the flip side of Christology. Where well. 
I'm going to unpack that a little bit, sort of in an oblique way, because it's somewhat of the conviction that underlies our appreciation of the profundity and the power of this distinction between law and gospel, because the interplay of one's anthropological understanding and then and then to soteriological realities, which then culminate in the ecclesiological gathering. This sort of interplay, this fugue, as it were, this um, this dynamic is the one that we sort of is kind of the the um, the the I keep wanting to say flux capacitor. It's the uh, it's the uh, it's the um, ion drive. There you go um, of the um, of. I don't want to, again, I don't want to speak for Mockingbird as, as a sole representative, but behind the people who continue to congregate at different conferences and um, online and read books together and are sort of walking through this. It's this interplay between these three great um, realities of life because the church, whatever else it does, and you would probably agree with me with this, whatever societal need it fills, whatever emotional stability it can provide, whatever sort of friendship or, or the addressing of the anomie, as we heard yesterday, whatever else it does, if it hasn't um, pointed you, brought you face to face with a savior, and then by extension brought you a message that has then sent you looking for a savior, i.e. the law and the gospel. Well, then there's all sorts of better ways to accomplish those ends, you know. I mean, I tell people all the time, Sunday morning, um, you know, the newspaper and Starbucks um, and sort of a, a you know, a, a brunch is a really special and sacred real estate for many people. So we better be saying something um, that gets below that. And it cannot be exhortation to be all the things that they know they should be, uh, um, uh, i.e. the law. It needs to be um, uh, a saving, enabling, comforting word. Um, so that's what, what I uh, – there, there are three aspects of this. And so I, in good fashion, I've pulled out three sort of um, high points in the history of mockingbirds that I wanted to share with you that I think speak to this. Um, and one, not to be too self-serving, but it is, has been referenced as my uh, post that I did about eight years ago now called Bigfoot Called My Unicorn an Antinomian. Um, and the conviction behind that is one that we share at Mockingbird, which is that God, simply that God is not mocked. The law of sin and death cannot be overthrown by any theological concept. There is no one, despite their protestations, who is not on the inexorable march towards death, which is the wages of sin, which is the just judgment of God on a broken and sinful world. So the reality of our wrathful uh, existence, of having been given over, uh, you know, a paradidomy to, 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 to the wrath of God, it, it should be more evident than it seems to be in the teaching and preaching of some preachers that I've run into. Uh, because the old and out, you know, the, the, the image that I have of many people preaching is that they are yelling at a paraplegic to get up and walk um, by their own strength, or even more, just sticking with the Bible, yelling at dry bones to have flesh or to stone hearts to start beating or to Lazarus to rise. 
um, all on the understanding that somehow their sort of motivation, their, their um, exhortation will somehow um, um, help this along. Well, we reject that. Um, and people who don't reject it don't come to my church, <laughs> or at least they come for a little while and they get upset um, and they leave. But, uh, you know, people who limp in or who are, again, speaking biblically, lowered down through the roof by their friends uh, as a last resort um, end up um, staying forever and end up coming to New York, to Mockingbird and places like this. This is what happens because the anthropology that underlies our work is that no one gets away with anything. That there is no, there's, there's no, um, uh, that the people protesting, you know, like Lady Macbeth, like methinks um, Lady Gaga protests too much. You know, I'm beautiful no matter, oh, that's, that's, um, that's actually, um, what's her name? Uh, not Lady Gaga, the, uh, who is it? Yeah, it's um, Christina Aguilera. I'm beautiful no matter what they say. Well, keep singing that, and time will keep on ticking, 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 and we'll just keep seeing how that works out for you uh, uh, at the end. And, um, and it sounds sort of silly, but we do get in a lot of fights about this, and I'm always a little bit, I have to say, a little bit exasperated, because I'm in the Episcopal Church, which in a certain sense could be understood as, uh, as antinomian, you know, as sort of anti all of the, but they're not really antinomian, because no one can be. They're simply legalists of a different stripe. And so what they've done is, and this is not a judgment on the Episcopal Church directly, but it's just a description, is that they've simply jettisoned some of the more traditional understandings of what was supposed to be uh, uh, moral and replaced it with other understandings of what is now the new morality, but they're equally as vociferous in their judgment and merciless in their, um, in their uh, execution of heretics in this respect. Um, and that goes across the spectrum. You know, that's the, the left and right, and you see this in your own churches, but that's the underlying conviction of, of what we're involved in is that no one gets away with anything. And the anthropology that God has uh, revealed through his scripture is, is insufficiently dark for most theologians because it doesn't necessitate only the cross. That's the problem. And so that's where we begin. We begin with the fact that you are telling yourself that you are handling life better than you actually are, um, and you need a savior, not a coach or a best friend although coaches and best friends can be nice. So that's what was the underlying conviction of Bigfoot called my unicorn and antinomian was, as Luther said um, that in his um, uh, antinomian disputations, that it was a play to an empty theater. This doesn't actually happen. And I don't know if it's somehow people get caught up in the church so much that they don't interact with, um, with sort of what, the, what, what a world that has actually been given over to their own, like, to, to the wrath of God, but people have been given over to themselves. Um, you can watch that on TV, and you can immerse yourself in it. And if you've actually immersed yourself in it, it's like the zombie movies. Like, you, you, you can't really see anything else the same way. And I think that's why, um, anyway, that's where we are with that. Bigfoot, comma, uniform, corner, antinomian is the anthropological undergirdings, which then obviously talks about a need for a savior. Now, where we have found in the soteriological uh, world of this is that one of the great um, sort of things that we've been involved in is sort of rehabilitating uh, broken Christian people. Because people who 
you know, we also see people get converted, obviously, out of darkness into light. But there are a lot of people who have um, who have collapsed due to um, uh, you know overexertion in their Christian life and have um, conflated that with Jesus and have um, have run from Him. Um, this is what happens. You know, the God that you uh, promises you all these things, if only just then. Well, when your child dies or you get sick or you lose your job or life, these are all euphemisms for life, uh, when they happen, um, you wonder, was it all true? Well, this is what we see. This is what we've done. And so there was a famous address uh, in our world uh, a couple of years ago by a reverend Episcopal minister down in Waco, Texas now. And he had sort of, it wasn't a syllogism proper, but it was, he had these three statements that, uh, that he said, which sort of summarized the convictional um, anthropology and then to the soteriology of Mockingbird. And he said this, that people are bad... Well, not bad, like necessarily, you know, he, he went on and on about saying how that didn't mean that they were, it was a moral judgment, but that there's a, there's a faulty operating system. <laughs> this is what it is. People are, are um, there's a brokenness. People are bad. People are blind. That there's a total, you know, this is all from Luke 4 with Jesus saying, I've come, to, you know, this is his diagnosis. But that people are bad, people are blind, and Christians are people. This was sort of a statement that when he said it at the conference, there was this kind of like exhalation and people spontaneously broke into tears, uh, some of whom didn't necessarily connect these things, but realized that what they had been hearing through the preaching and teaching of this ministry was in fact simply based upon the simul, of course, simul uses epicator, but uh, was nevertheless impacting them as people where they were in the midst of the ongoing fight against the lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. And so this was where the anthropological concern, saying you've been a Christian 50 years, well, that's just a miracle, period. You know, nothing, I mean, not, not in terms of however far or off you are, you still go to church, you, you can tell us all about your, your experiences, because um, they must be legion. Um, but you, the, the, there is no... I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm unabashedly influenced by uh, Ferdy and, and um, Paulson and uh, Bayer in these areas, but that the, the growth in sanctification um, over the period of one's life looks an awful lot more like just an increasingly and unbelievably grateful uh, awareness of the miracle of having been justified. Um, and that seems to be the case. And I think, again, not to tell, I mean, I know these fights, I know them well, I know there are books written on all these sides, but it seems to me that the experience of ministry with the aged and the, um, the uh, people with Alzheimer's and sort of dementia, when they lose control of their, of their faculties and their ability at that point to, um, we should say, uh, regress in their Christian life um, is, is a great question mark to anyone who has to argue of some sort of progressive uh, temporal sanctification this side of heaven. Anyway, that's just an aside. We can talk more about that. Um, so that's the anthropology that leads to the soteriology, which then creates as creatures of the word, the church. We don't, I mean, I have, I have such an allergy to uh, ecclesiology. Like I, I, I thought the Church of England would save me from this. It's beauty and it's history and it's accents, you know, all these things. I thought it would be like, and it did nothing. It, it, it totally eradicated eradicated any, any vestige of hope in the church, qua church, that I ever once had. Um, and that's fine. 
because the church is the creature of the word. And when the word is rightly divided and then fundamentally preached, well, then sinners are brought to new life by faith. This is what happens. And so that's why for Mockingbird and for, for we Reformation Anglicans, we hold the, the actual church very lightly, the um, you know, and frankly, too lightly for some. I mean, the 39 articles uh, are not as churchy enough as they should be. You know, our understanding of the sacraments is not as uh, precise. Our understanding of, of the orders of, uh, uh, you know, bishop, priest, and deacon are not as formulated as some people like. But frankly, for me, um, I stand with Stephen Paulson in this book that he wrote um, where he said that the, you could, the first sign of a church that's lost the gospel is when it only begins talking about itself. And there's nothing that, at least in the Anglican world, uh, outside of the good people preaching the gospel, that it does better than just talk about itself. Um, you know, and I just, I just run screaming from that. <laughs> you know, I mean, not screaming, but in my old theologian friend used to say, when you hear people like this, he just used to reach for his holsters. He'd say, you know, start backing away. Uh, you can't say that anymore because it's about guns and you'll be arrested. But nevertheless, um, uh, <laughs> so that brings me to the conclusion here. Um, because the ecclesiology um, is, as the creature of the word, is the conviction that, um, that sinners, uh, by the power of the Spirit, will um, be, Jesus will seek after and, and find his sheep. And we, as the, um, as the mouthpieces, are given the great joy of watching that come to fruition. Um, and it's actually fairly simple. <laughs> But it, um, it also requires a rather painful, um, constant reminder of why he had to be crucified instead of why he could have just come to sort of give us more instruction. And that's where the anthropology leads to soteriology, which then creates the, um, the, uh, the church. And so I have one final quote here, and I wanted you to hear from Dave Zoll himself, because um, this, uh, I've been in contact with him. Um, he's the godfather of my uh, son, and um, I mean, just to make the connection there, but he uh, wrote a book called, um, he called A Mess of Help, the crucified from the crucified soul of rock and roll, and this is where the Guns N' Roses idea came in, because Dave has a great um, and abiding love for, as everyone should, for the first Guns N' Roses album at the very least, Appetite for Destruction, um, but also for Axl Rose and his his work. And so I wanted to end with this, and then um, and then I'll not totally end, but but this is the final quote I have, and it's a fairly lengthy, but listen here. He says, speaking of hope, does the secret history of W. Axel Rose contain any? Or is his story the tale of a talented but troubled man disappearing into a black hole of recrimination and delusion? Is it ultimately a cautionary tale about the futility of fighting pyrotechnics with pyrotechnics, law with law? Thankfully, no one's life can be wholly reduced to whatever themes it may illustrate. It is not for us to know what's in Axel's mind, heart, or soul. If we did, who knows, it might take some of the luster out of his music. No, the only hope I can see is one hanging around Axel's neck and tattooed on his arm. Seriously. Despite his severe misgivings about the faith in which he was raised, crosses dominate not only the Use Your Illusion era videos, but his image since then as well. 
These days, he seldom appears on stage without an enormous cross necklace, an accessory which, he could, which could be dismissed as a fashion statement were it not accompanied by his outspoken affection for and collection of antique crucifixes. One can only presume that something about the central symbol of Christianity must have stuck with him. It surely isn't just that he fancies himself a bit of a rock messiah, though clearly he does. Having traveled from the Nazareth of Lafayette to the Jerusalem of the Hollywood Hills only to be met with resistance and suffering, you can understand how he might identify with our Lord. I suspect he goes deeper. Fortune and shame may have eaten Axel alive. Judgment and criticism may have dogged him inside and out, but apparently Calvary never lost its attraction. Not even the most toxic of religious upbringings, decadent of worldly indulgences, or protracted of psychological quagmires could strip it of its power. Perhaps this is because the cross of Christ addresses none more directly than those who have been ravaged by the law and ravaged in return. It summarizes judgment at its most visceral and inescapable. Indeed, the cycle of recrimination kills God himself. Yet in speaking of death and destruction and the worst of human nature, it also points beyond those things to the one who came not to condemn the world but to save it and to bring an end to the law and justify those who cannot justify themselves, no matter how many songs they write or rants they go on. In other words, that glittery glittery crucifix of axles symbolizes the hope that, like November rain, the fearful cycle of condemnation and reactivity will not last forever. The hope that, yes, there's a heaven above you, baby. Well, that's the work that we do. It's taking the reality of the broken world, inescapably condemned to the wrath of God, given over to themselves, powerless under the law. We take these people and give them the only hope the world has ever known in the light of that, which then creates a community of people who are surprisingly merciful and oftentimes touchingly forgiving and seem to represent the um, sort of the same idea you would have on a terminal cancer ward. Like, what, what did you come in here for? What did you, who cares? Let's go find out where the jello is. <laughs> and um, this is where we stand with Luther. Uh, in good stead, you know, as some, many of you know, his final words, you know, this in betla hoch is verum. This is, das ist frei. This is true. We are beggars. That is true. And as beggars who have found food, we unashamedly and unabashedly continue to um, simply uh, point people towards the place where we've been fed. Well, thank you all for letting me be here with you. It's been a great joy. Um, and I look forward to... Uh, to be interacting with you more in the future.